If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What should you do with a medieval mule? Well, if you carry on listening, you're about to find out. Dr Catherine Smithies is a medievalist based at the University of Melbourne in Australia. She's just written a book about donkeys in the Middle Ages, which was a topic that our content director and resident medieval animal enthusiast, Dave Musgrove, leapt at the chance of recording a podcast about. So Catherine, firstly, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why have you written a book about the medieval ass? Well, I mean, to me, it's such a fascinating, fabulous and complex creature. Um, and, you know, it's got so much meaning and significance and symbology in the medi- medieval period um, that I felt it deserved to be considered um, in its singularity in a standalone book. Um, There are books that consider animals in medieval society, but there's nothing that focuses on the ass um, alone. So um, that's really why. And then on top of that, I've always really had a soft spot for donkeys. Uh, Stems from my childhood. I think like everybody else, donkey rides on the beach, uh, donkey stories. Um, I really liked the Ladybird book, Ned the Lonely Donkey. Um, and then, of course, you know, fast forward several decades, I'm a medieval historian. I've got an interest in animals in medieval literature. So when I was offered this opportunity to write the book, I had to say yes. I'm not familiar with the book Ned the Lonely Donkey. That sounds like a corker. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's quite old. Um, and it was at my grandma's. I used to read it every Sunday on those weekly visits. Uh, but it made it into the last chapter. So um, you've written this book, and uh, it's a it's an introductory book. It's um, it's suitable for for uh, for anyone who's interested in medieval history, and it's a very enjoyable read. I've I've uh, I've had a read of it. Um, let's just start off with just a, a few terms, though. Um, we've we've talked about uh, ass and donkey. Um, so um, can we just uh, sort that out? So is the ass the same as a donkey? Uh, what's a mule, and when was this animal actually domesticated? So a few questions in one there, but perhaps you could just give us the basics. 
Yep, sure. Uh, so ass and donkey, let's start with that. Uh, yes, an ass is a donkey. They are um, exactly the same animal. Um, today, obviously, in this English-speaking world, we prefer the term donkey, and that's because in the 18th century, there were variations in the pronunciation of the letter A. So it was either a long or short, uh, so we had ass and ass, depending on regional uh, variations. And then, of course, to avoid any embarrassment of using a word in polite company that sounded like bottom, uh, the word donkey was adopted. But in the medieval world, the ass was known by its Latin name, asinus, hence ass. Uh, as for a mule, well, that's the result of crossbreeding between a female horse and a male donkey. Um, and what we see in the mule is it's got that hybrid vigour and it takes the best from both worlds. So it's got the, um, the endurance of the donkey, but it requires less food than a horse. And we know that the medieval world certainly bred mules, um, but they really come into their own in the new world. So a little bit after the medieval uh, period. Uh, the donkey was first domesticated about 6,000 years ago in the Middle East. And that possibly came about due to water or food shortages that brought the donkey into closer contact with humans than had previously happened. Um, so, you know, man and donkey have been around together for a long, long time. So, but in terms of uh, of nomenclature, when we talk about the, the Middle Ages, it's more correct to talk about the ass of the donkey. That's how they, they that's the, the the right wording. Okay, we should probably interchange a bit in this discussion, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yes, but, uh, let's bear that in mind. Um, and then uh, another question. This is a, a creature that you bring up in your book, uh, the Ono Centaur. What exactly is an Ono Centaur? Okay, well, an onocentaur is uh, a mythical, fantastical hybrid that's half man, half beast. Um, usually it's described as having the head of a man and the body of an ass. Uh, or it could be the other way around. Um, it could even be other, other animals as well. Um, I think its mythical origins probably stem from a time when um, a group of people who had not yet got to the stage of riding equids, horses or donkeys, actually saw people riding uh, these animals from afar. Um, and so it looks like man and horse are one and the same creature. Um, but in the Middle Ages, the honor centre becomes a, a metaphor for men ruled by their animal passions and asininity, uh, not their rational brains. Um, so it becomes a symbol of male lust. So the the um, the creature's monstrous um, bestial half represents man's animal nature, but its upper human half that was its rational half. Right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the uses of this animal in medieval Europe. So you mentioned there that the creature was domesticated uh, a long time before the Middle Ages in the Middle East. But can you tell us how widespread the animal was in medieval Europe as a domesticated animal and what role it performed in society and economy? And uh, I, I'm just going to uh, mention a, a little quote in your blurb from the book, which says something like it was the white van of, of the Middle Ages, which is quite a nice <coughs> phrase. So, OK, so dispersal um, of the animal when we're talking about how widespread it is, uh, there's a line, there's a, this geographical marker that delineates the spread of the donkey in medieval Europe, and that is the 50-degree latitude, and that's roughly um, 
it follows the line of the English Channel, if you think. I mean, I know the English Channel isn't sort of straight, um, but roughly speaking. And what we find is that on the continent of Europe, let's say from France, southern Germany downwards, um, the donkey is widespread. But above that line, if we're talking the British Isles, Scandinavia, there's some evidence for the donkey, but it's minimal. And in the few cases I've come across, uh, the location has been at major trading posts. So it suggests in those instances that the beast was maybe in transit or it was being used as a pack animal. Uh, essentially, it's too cold above 50 degrees latitude for the for the donkey to thrive. And it makes perfect sense because when you think about where the ass comes from, Africa and the Middle East, I mean, it's really suited to a hot, dry climate. What were the uses that these animals were put to um, below that uh, below that line? Yeah, well, um, I mean, essentially, I think the donkey or the ass is, is uh, basically a pack animal. Uh, it's known for its sturdiness and its short-footedness. So it's the ideal animal to carry people and loads across the Alps uh, along major trading routes. Um, it will carry loads to local markets, <clears throat> to regional fairs. Um, the donkey would also turn grinding stones for milling. Um, and we've got images of donkeys doing these two activities in some of the bestiaries, which are books of beasts. Um, there's some evidence that in some places the donkey might have pulled a plough, but this seems to be quite early in the medieval period and only in certain places. Um, usually it seems to be teams of oxen that pulled the plough rather than the donkey. Um, other things, we see priests riding asses. Uh, it's a sign of their humbleness that taps into the asses' religious associations. Um, and it's a valuable animal. Um, I couldn't find any firm evidence for the cost of a donkey, um, you know, how much they were bought and sold for. But there is other evidence that points to their value. Um, one of those is the Peace of God Treaty from 989, which was an attempt by the church to curb secular violence. And this treaty clearly states that anyone who steals an ass from the poor will be excommunicated. So it's a severe penalty. So it sort of points to the idea that the ass is um, it's a valuable creature. It's essential for people's well-beings. And we've also got people who are leaving, um, writing their last will and testament and leaving the ass to their local church or abbey. Uh, so, you know, that can be seen as a way of ensuring salvation. Um, you know, if I give you my ass, will you pray for me when I'm dead and help me get to heaven? But it also reveals that the ass has got some monetary worth as well. There is a bit of a taboo about eating uh, equine animals in large parts of Europe. Were were asses eaten by anybody? Um Yes, they were. If I start with the taboo, like you said, uh, there were decrees against against that. Um, but they're quite early on in the piece in the 700s. And I think that's to bring newly Christianized um, areas into line with Christian traditions of not eating horse meat. Um, we know that some societies in in medieval Europe did eat donkey meat um, and it was considered a delicacy, but these are really very localised and they really are the minority. Uh, the only other time people ate their donkeys were when times were particularly dire. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, who's a 12th century Benedictine 
uh, nun, she's a, a mystic and an abbess. Uh, my favourite quote from her is that the donkey flesh was fetid from its stupidity. Um, I mean, clearly she's not holding back there um, and doesn't think much of eating donkey meat. Um, but like I said, in desperate times, people would eat their donkeys. Uh, and it's well recorded in, for example, the accounts from the First Crusade. Uh, the chronicles tell us that food was in such short supply, especially during the siege at Antioch, that the crusaders resorted to eating the horses and then the donkeys. In fact, basically anything they could lay their hands on. Um, and that prices for uh, an ass went through the roof, as you can imagine. And with the, with just on the Crusades, were donkeys um, important in, uh, in in the Crusader movements of, of people and, and the stuff they were having to carry? Do we know much about how how important they were in the in the baggage trains going to the Middle East? Um, it, it's interesting because donkeys rarely get mentioned. Uh, they're not considered that important to be mentioned in, in the chronicles of the Crusades uh, because I think it was just part and parcel that they would be used. There was nothing exceptional about them. It becomes exceptional when the Crusaders start eating them because um, times are, you know, they're, they're dying of star. Everyone's dying of starvation. Um, so, yeah, the, there are images of donkeys um, in in war situations in the medieval manuscripts, but they're not really mentioned in writing as such. And presumably never used in a conflict situation, never used as a, a ridden into battle or anything like that. They, they wouldn't be appropriate for that sort of thing. Uh, I've not read anything that says that that's what they did. Um, we, we know that some of the, the noblemen were reduced to riding um, the ass, uh, and again, that's that's seen as being exceptional. Um, you know, it's such a um, a downturn in 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 a nobleman's you know sign of prosperity. But um, whether they actually rode into battle or not, it's not really mentioned. Okay, and were there any other uh, uses of a dead donkey? <laughs> I.e., were their skins used for anything, or were they used for any medicinal purposes? Any parts of their bodies used for that? Um, so were the skins used for anything? The short answer is is yes. Um, exactly what for, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, there is archaeological evidence in parts of France for the existence of tanneries um, and that those tanneries were, were skinning ass, ass hides. Um, and we also know that Albert the Great or Albertus Magnus, he was a 13th century Dominican um, theologian, um, an eventual saint, it tells us that he wore shoes made from donkey leather and that the leather was particularly tough. Um, so I, I think donkey leather is being used just as any other leather is. It's not for anything in particular uh, and it doesn't really make it to the records in any great detail. Um, medicinally, uh, we'll go back to Albert the Great again. Uh, he had quite a bit to say on this. I think the example in, in the book is a recipe to get rid of vermin in a house. And he recommends that if you use the burnt lungs of an ass uh, to smoke out the house, uh, that will get rid of the vermin. I mean, in reality, it'd probably smoke everybody out of the house. Um, it would be unbearable. But um, I think I didn't put this in the book, but um, interestingly, Albert offers beauty treatments as well. So there's one for a medieval perm. So if you want some curly hair, this is what you need to do. 
Um, you anoint your straight hair with the, the poo of a wild ass, the dung of a wild ass, and you must grind it up with some bile of oxen. Um, I mean, I don't know about curly hair. It's enough to make your hair stand on end. It might even make it fall out. Um, <clears throat> and so obviously those remedies are a bit dubious, to say the least. Uh, but Thomas of Cantonpray, who's Albert's student, and then later on his uh, colleague of, of, Al, of Albert, uh, does have one suggestion, and this still actually has resonance today. And he said that donkey milk was good for soothing toothache, whereas today we recommend that if you lose a tooth, you should put it in some milk as soon as possible. So uh, they were on the right lines. Right. Um, so I'm assuming you've never tried the donkey dung perming method. No, even in lockdown, uh, where we are not allowed to go to the hairdresser, I have not resorted to Albert's techniques. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, it tells us that the ass was an important beast for understanding and attaining salvation, but equally the ass was essential for people's well-being and their livelihoods. Um, you know, most people knew about the ass from this nature or religious perspective, and that its many attributes become useful metaphors for tools and learning. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So there's lots of uh, lots of uses for, for the for the ass in medieval society. Then, so we talked through uh, what they were used for in life and death, um, and that's all very interesting. But your book um, uh, focuses it, it covers that, but it focuses uh, much more on the place of the ass in literature, religion, and academia. And this is uh, where I think it gets really interesting. Um, so I just wanted to talk about that for a bit. But before we get into that, we ought to discuss how animals generally were viewed in the Middle Ages and how far uh, and, and why they were anthropomorphized. It's a difficult word, so I always get it wrong, but I think that's right. So basically giving animals some sort of human characteristics. Um, so can you shed any light on that before we move into this discussion? Yes. Um, I mean, medieval society was interested in animals and particularly the relationship between humans uh, and animals. I mean, obviously in the fables, we see that they are anthropomorphized, um, and that animals take on human attributes, and that's done uh, in a didactic sense, so that these these animals are behaving like humans, and in the fables they're meant to teach humans uh, particular behaviours. So didactic is just another word for teaching uh, or instructional. Um, I mean, from my perspective as a scholar, I'm very interested in the way um, medieval literature works in a didactic sense. So when I look at animals, I'm always looking at that. And you see in the medieval world, um, it comes through really strongly that animals, even if they're not anthropomorphized and, and don't take on human attributes, um, it might be there in, in a metaphor or an analogy um, in, in that way. Um, 
and, you, and am I right in thinking you're uh, you're quite an expert in in fables and their uh, and their place in medieval society? Uh, I'm more an expert on the fablio, which um, are not fables at all. Um, What's the difference? Short... <laughs> um, so the the fablio are, is a genre of French medieval literature that date from about the 13th century. 13th century they are um they're quite ribald in their nature um and only a few of them actually have animals in them but there is some scholarship that says they're uh, they're like an offshoot from the fables or that they've been influenced by the fables and a few of them you can certainly see um, a relationship between the between the two um and for me i think that relationship comes in this the way the fables can be understood as a didactic literature, trying to teach people the correct way to behave in the same way that the fables do. But they use humans and not animals. And, and so the fable, just let's focus on the fables just for a second. So uh, would I be right thinking the fables are basically born out of Aesop uh, uh, and and then they come, so a, a classical scholar, and then they come into medieval Europe and they're quite widespread as and used as a as a moralistic and teaching aid Across medieval Europe, is that a reasonable yeah, 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 statement? That's excellent. That's an excellent uh, synopsis of the fables. Um, right. So we talked a little bit about uh, medieval understanding of animals. Let's talk specifically about uh, the, the ass then. So what attributes were assigned to the ass in the Middle Ages uh, and by whom? Okay, so, well, the ass is associated with a paradoxical range of attributes. It's quite a contrarian beast, if you like. Um, so in its natural world environment, we see attributes such as stubborn, uh, but also steadfast. And these come from the classical world, and then they're carried through into the Middle Ages. And so writers such as Aristotle and Pliny the Elder um, you know, talk about the ass being a stubborn but steadfast beast, and then those ideas are perpetuated and carried on in the Middle Ages. Um, it has religious attributes, and by this, obviously, I mean Christian. So the ass is associated with humility, with patience, with faithfulness. But then, paradoxically, the ass can also be a figure for the sinner. Um, and obviously, these ideas come from Christian writers, but I couldn't actually name anyone specifically. Um, there's a range of influences and contexts. So obviously, we've got the Bible, we've got the early church fathers, we've got the bestiary authors, uh, and so on. There's no one single influence. Um, and I would say that these natural and Christian world attributes become the basis for how medieval people understood the ass. And then those attributes get used in other spheres of medieval culture, such as uh, the academic world and the world of literature and also art. So focusing on, on the religious um, side of things for a second, then. So you, you, you uh, delineated those attributes just then. Um so, so where was where was the ass talked about in a, in a religious context? Was it was it discussed in in churches? Was it used as a teaching aid for you know to to explain to to the to the layman how they ought to behave? Uh, yeah, that's one way that it was done. I mean, obviously, there's there's lots of ways, and the Bible is the seminal Christian text, and we see the donkey featuring in both the Old and New Testaments. 
Um, but probably one of the most influential examples is that of the, the association of the donkey with Christ's life and, and the story of Christ, because obviously uh, it carries a pregnant Mary to Jerusalem. Uh, the ass is present at the nativity. It carries the Holy Family to safety, to escape the massacre of the innocents. And then it carries an adult Christ into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And its role in those events is essentially as the, the bearer of salvation. It carries Christ who you know represents our salvation and it becomes known for its humble and patient nature. So the ass becomes an exemplar of the good Christian um, if we take that a bit further, when Christ has his disciples fetch the donkey to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he specifically asks for a donkey and an unbroken one. And then that symbology is that the, the donkey willingly submits to Christ's authority, just as good Christians submit to God. So it's one way in which the ass teaches um, Christians you know, how to behave and understand the story of Christ. So the donkey's used as a, as a kind of a, a moral aid for Christian values in some ways. Um, what about in the scholastic world then? Uh, in what way was it used as a, as a teaching aid there? Um, yeah, if we just go back a, a few steps, what we see in the 12th and 13th century is a, a rise in cathedral schools and the start of the medieval universities. So formalised education really takes off at this time. And then what we see is that this idea of reason or the concept of reason becomes central to intellectual thought in Western medieval Europe. And so we've got all sorts of debates going on about rationality. Um, on top of that, we've got debates about the difference between humans and animals. Is there even uh, a difference? And then, of course, from the encyclopedic tradition, the ass is the most irrational of all the beasts. So it becomes a really useful foil for debates on rationality. If you're studying reason and rationality, well, you know, you've got this really nice alternative in, in the donkey because it's the most irrational of all the beasts. And why is that? Why, would, why is it personified as so irrational? Um, I think because it's stubborn um, and it, it's not a fair attribute in a way to call the donkey stubborn because actually it's quite cautious. But medieval people and the classical world didn't really see the donkey that way. I mean, if the donkey didn't walk, want to walk across a slatted bridge because it felt that it was unsafe, because it could see the movement of the water underneath, then it wouldn't. Um, and it would be virtually impossible to get the donkey to cross. So it builds up this stubborn reputation, uh, which then sort of transgresses to stupidity, if you like. Um, and so it becomes this irrational beast. I've got personal experience of that, actually. I went, went once uh, went donkey trekking in the Pyrenees and uh, it was a, it was an excellent donkey, but we got to a little river and they, donkeys don't like crossing water, I think, yeah. uh, and uh, and it would not go across. So I suppose, you know, that would be a problem in the Middle Ages because there would have been a lot of um, stretches of water you would need to cross. I've seen a video where a man actually taught his donkey to cross a bridge that had running water underneath and he was trying to show how clever the donkey was because he took it back a year later and the donkey crossed it without any issues at all. So, um, you know, I think it just shows how clever the donkey actually is. It's not a stupid animal at all. 
Yeah. yeah. So, um, so were donkeys um, sort of singled out in uh, in this period for, for 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 this sort of treatment? I mean, presumably other animals were also used in as, as teaching aids as well to to with, with with other similar characteristics or attributes assigned to them. And um, yes, but it, it it really is the donkey that's the irrational, stupid beast. It's par excellence, if you like. Uh, it's it's particularly in this scholastic world, it's used over and over again. It's used as personal slights. Um, so medieval scholars, when they're trying to debate their opponents and put them down, they'll call them an ass. Um, you know, you're an ass. No, you're an ass, and, and so on. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting attribute, really. And there's one nice little story in your book, which uh, which I'd just like you to tell us a bit more about, which is why might someone show an ass playing a liar? Okay, well, why indeed? Um, obviously, because the ass is too stupid to know not to, or that it physically can't pe- play a liar. Um, I mean, it is an absurd image. Um, seriously, though, I'd, I'd say that this why might an ass play a liar is still open to debate. Uh, but in my book, I speak about two points of view as to why this might happen. Uh, the first applies to Boethius's uh, famous quote in the Consolations of Philosophy, in which a character called Lady Philosophy asks the author if her words have penetrated his mind or is he as dull as the ass to the sound of the liar. Um, and what it's doing is highlighting that mental process whereby comprehension and understanding were not abilities that everyone was capable of. So not everyone's clever enough uh, to understand everything that they see and read. And then that follows through into sculptures of asses playing liars that occur in many medieval churches. Uh, This idea of understanding or an inability to understand because it's then applied to the illiterate or unlearned Christian um, who faithfully believed but couldn't articulate all those you know, high, um, divinely revealed truths of Christian faith. Uh, so the purpose of the sculpture was to remind churchgoers that the truly faithful were welcome in God's house. And quite often these sculptures of the ass playing a liar are actually situated above doorways in the church. So as you walked through the doorway, if you looked up, you'd see uh, this image and it's just there as a, as a reminder. The second way to understand the liar playing ass comes from the Greek fabler Phaedrus and his fable, The Ass and the Liar. Um, This fable tells of an ass who finds a liar and tries to play it, but obviously he can't. He doesn't have those human capabilities. He doesn't have the dexterous fingers. He just has these really clumsy hooves. And the cautioning moral um, says, you know, it challenges, the, the moral cautions against those who challenge the inherent nature. And inherent nature is something that concerned medieval society quite a bit. Um, or in another way, people trying to be something that they're not. Uh, so social climbers were often censured. Uh, medieval society is really conservative and it doesn't like change. So if you're born a peasant, you must stay a peasant. Um, and that's the bottom line for many fables. In the scholastic environment, this liar-playing ass is projected onto students who are too dumb to learn, and then it's also applied to their teachers for trying to to teach those who are incapable of learning. 
So the, the, the liar playing ass is representative of someone who's trying to be or do something that they're, they're not suited to. So the depths of meaning there in, the, in that one image, it's very interesting. And, and, and But one of the aspects there that you sort of alluded to is perhaps a slightly comedic side there to, to, to the donkey trying to play a musical instrument that it's clearly not um, physically capable of doing. And that moves us into into the realm of literature a little bit, um, where, where the ass is employed in some ways in a, in a comedic fashion. So tell us about that. Well, I'd say the ass has always been a figure of fun. Um, you know, we see it in the ancient Greek fables and, you know, it really doesn't come off well there. I mean, the the ass that wears the lion's coat and then brays rather than rowers, I mean, it's laughed at by all the other animals. So instead of being feared, which is the boast of the ass, it, it just becomes this figure of ridicule. Um, as for why... I mean, I don't know, really. I mean, if pushed, I'd say that the ass lends itself to being a figure of fun because of its ancient reputation as this senseless, stubborn and irrational beast that gets per, um, perpetuated. You know, and it's not just in the Middle Ages. It goes beyond. I mean, if you think about Shakespeare's bottom from Midsummer Night's Dream, I mean, that's a figure of fun. We've got Sancho and his ass in Don Quixote. Uh, and then there's more modern donkeys, um, which are figures of fun as well. We've got the pessimistic Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, and then, of course, the voluble donkey in Shrek. I mean, these are all memorable donkeys that we've got some sort of attachment to, and we know them for the humour. And what about uh, the ass's use in uh, political satire, being used for political purposes? And there's a really interesting example you've got in your book about uh, the way that uh, King Richard II in England is is treated as a crowned ass. So how does that come about? Yeah, um, politically, the ass is a really useful, it's a, another one of these useful metaphors. And it's basically, it's used to criticise political rivals and those in positions of authority. Uh, and again, it's this trope of stupidity or the asinine that comes to the fore so like you said, Richard II, he comes in for quite a bit of censure and he's called this crowned ass. Um, and it's his political rivals that give him this title. I mean, actually, it happens during his successor's reign, so Henry IV, because uh, Henry's supporters attach uh, this crowned ass symbol to Richard um, because Henry has assumed the throne in dubious circumstances and they want or they need to justify Henry's kingship. So they need to downplay Richard as a, an effective king and this crowned ass indicates an ineffective ruler uh, and obviously Richard's reign was certainly problematic, I mean not least of all because he came to be king while still a boy. Um, so for Richard's political enemies, it's a, a really useful tool um, to apply to Richard. Uh, there's another um, text, a really useful Anglo-Norman text called The Six Kings to Follow John. Um, and Richard's enemies are relying on this because the poem actually assigns animals to all the English kings. And it declares that the fifth king to follow John, which is Richard II, as an ass. And it describes in the poem, um, the ass king is described as having feet of lead and a head of an ass. So, you know, it's a reference to a slow, ignorant, beastly king. And, and it works well for Richard's detractors. 
Interestingly, it's not just Richard's fellow Englishmen who are censoring him. The, the French use similar astropes as well. And maybe that's to be understood because of the rivalry between England and France. But there's a French poet, uh, Eustache Deschamps, who writes a series of poems about uh, the Hundred Years' War. Um, and he's writing in the last sort of quarter of the 14th century. And he likens England, England and Richard to an ass um, who, had, um, who was burdensome and who had feet of lead. And Deschamps also declares that the French king, Charles VI, uh, would defeat the ass. So in other words, he would defeat Richard and regain all the French lands that had been lost to Edward III. So this poet is really using political propaganda to encourage Charles to take on the English and he uses the ass to denigrate Richard and weaken his authority as the King of England. So the message is, Richard is our enemy, but he's slow, he's stupid, and we can defeat him and the English, which, of course, doesn't happen during Richard's reign, but it does ultimately happen because the, the French are victorious in the Hundred Years' War. So it's a sort of political prophecy, if you like. That's fascinating. Um, one other example I was thinking of, I've been doing a, a little bit of work on the bio tapestry and there's a, a, a notable scene there where uh, one of the main characters in the early stage of the tapestry, Guy of Pontieu, is shown riding a horse but with um, very obvious pointed ass ears. Um, is that something you looked at in your studies and it, would that be making the same point, do you suppose? Um I, I didn't look at this in the course of my studies for the book, and I really wish I had done. Um, so I'm thankful that you've pointed it out. Um, I'd have to have a look at the whole context, you know, the whole image, but it certainly sounds like um, somebody's having a go at, at Guy for, for whatever reason. Um, you know, it could just maybe have been the embroiderer having a bit of fun, but usually this, uh, it's deliberate um, and there's some message there. Uh, that's trying to be passed on to the viewer. Right, getting towards the end here, um, another um, sort of metaphor that asses we, we use for was as a metaphor for human sexuality. Um, so that's we haven't really talked about that at all. So so tell us how that uh, how that fits into this story. Yeah, so um, I see this as stemming from the encyclopedic and bestiary tradition. Uh, that depicts the ass as a lustful beast and that this reputation is then taken up by authors of medieval literature and it becomes yet another useful trope. I mean, medieval society is interested in human sexuality um, and, you know, using it as a way to modify behaviours. So the ass has really got some very distinct sexual tendencies that set it apart from other animals. So, for instance, the fact that the ass could mate with a horse uh, was seen as un practising unnatural sex. And this idea that animals of different species could mate is then used in medieval literature. Uh, we've also got the tradition that the ass's loud braying is associated with its lustful urges. Um, I mean, it's false, but uh, it's another way in which medieval authors could use this as a metaphor for human sexuality. Uh, one particular example where we see this playing out is in a Spanish reworking of the ass and the lapdog fable. Um, in the original story, the ass is jealous of the lapdog because it gets to sit on its master's lap and be petted, um, whilst the ass obviously labours away hard work 
all, all day. And then one day the ass decides that it too is going to sit on its master's lap um, and enjoy a bit of attention. But of course, things don't go well and the ass ends up getting a beating for its efforts. In the Spanish story, the master is replaced with a mistress. And when the ass tries to sit on the mistress's lap, the result is told in a highly sexualized way. So we're told that the dog licks and kisses with its tongue and mouth and that it wags its tail and it stands on, it, on its hind legs to exhibit its masculinity. And then when the ass mimics the dog's actions, what we read is, I mean, it's all eroticized. Um, the ass enters the mistress's personal space and it covers the mistress frontally by placing its forelegs on her shoulders. Again, it's all aimed at revealing the ass's sexual prowess. When it stands on its hind legs to embrace the mistress, its phallus is exposed. And then the author describes this whole manoeuvre in terms um, that suited more to, um, you know, a, a frenzied stallion, if you like. Uh, I think the quote is something like, like a mad fool or like a mad stud, the fool came on. Um, and then the ass brays, just like the sexually frustrated wild asses who bred to relieve their sexual tensions. Understanding that, really, uh, projecting these symbols onto the mistress turns this fable from a moral tale that cautions against transgressing uh, against the laws of inherent nature, so an ass can never be a lapdog, it can only ever be an ass. It changes that to a moral tale about the dangers of female sexuality, so the ass's lustful nature is overlaid onto the lustful woman. Uh, the ass desired the attention of its mistress and it actually endangered her, so women's desires to possess men sexually were equally dangerous. That's the message um, I think it's trying to get across. Um, the tale plays on the medieval belief that women and asses were lustful creatures and that women could succumb to their animalistic desires. Right, so that story uh, sort of drops us into a, an undercurrent of, of medieval misogyny then, I, I suppose, um, uh, and helps us to understand that, um, which uh, leads us neatly onto my last wrap-up question, which is uh, what does study of the, of the ass sort of more broadly tell us about medieval society? What are the themes? Yes, um, well, broadly speaking, I think it tells us that medieval society was interested in animals and their place in the world. Uh, it tells us that the ass was an important beast for understanding and attaining salvation, but equally the ass was essential for people's well-being and their livelihoods. Um, you know, most people knew about the ass from this nature or religious perspective and that its many attributes become useful metaphors for tools and learning. And then, of course, what we see is that those religious and environmental attributes uh, allowed the ass to spread to other areas of medieval culture. And that's why we see this rich presence in literature, in images, even in the hallowed halls of learning. So the ass teaches medieval society about morals, about behaviour, about salvation. And that, I think, really reveals some of medieval society's social, cultural and religious anxieties of the day. 
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Catherine Smithies. That's a, an excellent uh, introduction to the topic of the of the medieval ass and also into some of these wider themes from medieval society. So uh, a very interesting conversation. And as I said, the book, uh, Introducing the Medieval Ass, that's published now by the University of Wales Press. So if you want to get more on this topic, then uh, have a read of that. And uh, there are some good images of the of the ass playing the lyre in there and that sort of thing. So it's worth a look. Um, so Catherine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for inviting me on your programme. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Catherine Smithies speaking to Dave Musgrove. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear an archive episode on whether the suffragettes were terrorists.